Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, warnings that Ontario could see thousands of new daily cases of COVID-19 if no further action is taken to curb the pandemic. The key indicators of the pandemic continue to worsen. Uh, and although the impact varies widely across regions in the province, most indicators are moving in a, a worsening direction. Quebec considers temporary school closures to slow the spread of the coronavirus. As we know, as uh, when we open schools, there is uh, some transmission in the, in the community that is added. And Western Canada's Maverick Party plans to model itself on the Bloc Québécois. You just want the Western Party to have basically the balance of power because he feels that otherwise in national parties, national interests, basically central Canada and in some part Atlantic Canada, dominate and Western interests don't get considered because most of the votes are not in the West, they're in Ontario and in Quebec. It's Friday, November 13th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief and the host of the follow-up podcast, Althea Raj. Althea, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mark. So there has been quite a bit of bad news with regard to the number of coronavirus infections across the country and quite a lot of reaction to that on the part of provincial governments. The Quebec government is talking about perhaps a temporary school closure. Uh, In Ontario, people are debating whether there should be further restrictions that are put in place. Uh, There's a warning that there could be a significant increase in the number of cases in Ontario if there aren't restrictions put in place, just based on how much the numbers have been growing in recent days. In other parts of the country, they're having similar discussions. Uh, So this is obviously a, a function of the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic. People were predicting this. It's not a surprise, but we now have to deal with the consequences of it. And governments across this country face some very tough decisions now. Yeah, I think the most striking, um, the most striking thing that happened yesterday was probably Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, who actually had to do his press conference from isolation because he was uh, exposed to somebody that has had coronavirus um, earlier in the week. He basically said the virus is winning. We are fully in the second wave. Um, If you look at the charts across the country, everybody is on an upswing. Some jurisdictions, and like knock on wood, Mark, like Ottawa is doing so well compared to most places in Ontario, uh, where like the curve has actually gone down. But provinces across the country, the the province-wide numbers are all spiking upwards in quite scary ways. So Ontario yesterday released its modeling, which basically um, painted the picture that if things continue the way they are, even if things, uh, even if things don't, um, uh, even if things don't continue the way they are, like I'm not actually sure how to phrase this, if the percentage of reproduction is even lower than what we're, what we're looking at, we're looking at a case that looks worse than France that under any of the modeling that was presented to the public yesterday, we are reaching 150 ICU beds um, taken up by coronavirus cases. And that benchmark, we were told by the medical experts, means that surgeries and um, other essential services that are performed in hospitals would have to be postponed and cancelled because the, uh, the hospital sector operates basically at full capacity, which is probably another issue. But the, pro- 
the scariest number was that um, by the end of December, we could be looking at 6,500 cases per day in Ontario alone. And that is a very scary picture. Um, when you hear Bonnie Henry, the chief medical officer in British Columbia, who also released modeling numbers on Thursday, she talked about um, the cases in BC uh, could be, um, well, they're at the moment, they're doubling every 13 days, and there could they could be seeing more than 1,000 new cases every day. Obviously, that's a lot less than the number in Ontario, but it's significant, um, you know, for a country, for a province that has a third of the population of Ontario. So um, lots of lots of scary scenarios being presented to the public. And maybe part of that is a messaging to the public that maybe we're not scared enough at the moment that we feel like we did our part in the spring. What we're trying, what the premiers and the health officers are trying to tell us is that the situation is scarier perhaps than in the spring and we must stay home. Um, in Alberta, Premier Kenny uh, finally, after uh, resisting for quite a while to impose tougher restrictions, yesterday announced that recreational sports, bars and restaurants um, will have to close by 11. This is nowhere close to what medical professionals in that province were demanding. They wrote an open letter, if you remember last week, hundreds of uh, physicians asked for tougher restrictions, but right. at least it's something. And my understanding from what happened yesterday, you know, on the Premier's call with the Prime Minister, is that Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, who has also resisted calls, and for some people, were truly perplexing. I mean, the numbers in the Peel region are, in, you know, in some slides, are literally off the map. Um and he's basically let municipal officials fill in the gap. But he apparently told his colleagues on the call yesterday that nobody should be surprised if Ontario does push ahead with tougher measures. So, yeah, some some scary outlooks across the country. As you mentioned, in Quebec, um, some creative thinking about pausing uh, school infections. It's different also across the country, if I can say, Mark, like, Bonnie Henry in BC said that schools have not been uh, a source of many uh, COVID cases, which is quite different from Quebec, where actually many infections um, have been the res- have been spread through right. schools. And yeah. so, uh, in that province, the premier is saying, "Hey, maybe we need to take a pause, hit, hit the pause button on in-class um, schooling for a little bit." He doesn't want to lose much of the school year, though. So. Students in that province might be attending classes even in July. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the decisions that's uh, that the Quebec government is considering. I know in Ontario there's talk about uh, perhaps uh, a school closure at some point. Although the education minister ruled that out for December yesterday, uh, and and I think at, at the heart of this is, as you say, is there's an element of personal responsibility. There's also the signals that are being sent by government as they try to both. Uh, allow the economy to continue to uh, to move along uh, and protect people from the spread of the infection, and that's the that, that has put them often at cross, cross purposes. So, we'll see what kinds of decisions are made in the in the days ahead. Let's turn to a couple of other topics, Althea. Uh, first of all, in the context of the coronavirus uh, and the American election that has just been wrapping up, uh, a lot of Canadians are wondering whether 
We can have an election and use mail-in ballots in this country and have people have confidence in the results of that election if there are a lot of mail-in ballots, because there are people speculating there could be an election in 2021 before the pandemic Mm -hmm. is over. And Elections Canada spoke to that yesterday. What did they say? Yes, they're planning uh, for a third in request for mail-in votes. So this is interesting. In the last election, there were only about 50,000 people who chose to cast a ballot by mail. Most of these are overseas ballots of Canadians who live abroad, Canadians who are posted abroad, including the military. Now they are expecting a third. Anywhere between four and five mail-in ballots, a million Canadians will be requesting mail-in ballots. And so the agency is um, planning for that. Basically, under the plan that they would have would be that Electors would have until the Tuesday before Election Day, so a week prior to E-Day, to request a mail-in ballot. And the mail-in ballot would come come with what they're calling a personalized voting kit, basically a unique 21-digit outer envelope ID that, um, if you requested two mail-in ballots, would automatically scan and your ballot would only be counted at the very end of the voting process. And if you tried to mail in two ballots, well, then actually, this is interesting, your vote would be cancelled because neither one of your envelopes would be counted. So in an interesting, I thought this was cheeky, um, so on November 3rd, you know, in the U.S., there is no national, independent, nonpartisan agency that administers the elections. The elections are all run, uh, in some cases, run by the county, but they're run by uh, the state. And so that's why you have this kind of hodgepodge of different voting rules and different processes. And the Elections Canada used the election day in the United States to basically promote itself and to remind Canadians that, hey, aren't you happy you have Elections Canada and a nonpartisan agency that administers this election from coast to coast? Right. Come and learn more about us. Yeah. So um, they're, they're planning for... Um, a new reality in a COVID pandemic situation. Um, They are also planning for more voting voting days, uh, something similar to actually what we saw in BC. So you'd be able to have two extra days of polling over the weekend to avoid uh, long lineups. And they're also using the U.S. election to remind us that, uh, I guess maybe this is a favorite Canadian pastime, that there are some things in Canada that are a lot better than in the United States. We like Um, to think that in this country, yeah. (laughs) Um, All right, very quickly, Althea, we're just wrapping up, but uh, you wrote yesterday about the Maverick Party in Western Canada and uh, their intent on on becoming more of a force in Canadian politics and and perhaps even modeling their approach after the Bloc Québécois, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so this is actually, um, so we have a podcast on HuffPost. It's called Follow Up. Please subscribe. Um, and uh, our last podcast was about the Black Québécois. And in that vein, I called Jay Hill, who is a former Conservative MP, as you know, and is now the interim leader of the Maverick Party, which was formerly called the Wexit Party. And their goal, uh, their stated goal, is Western separation or a constitutional change that would make the West feel like it has the power to. Um, basically chart its own future as it wishes. So uh, Jay Hill is looking at 
a constitutional change with regards to provincial uh, jurisdiction over natural resources, basically telling Ottawa that it can't enact things like the tanker ban, the Bill C-48, or uh, new environmental assessment processes like we saw in Bill C-69. But he thinks that an amending formula makes that impossible, so Western separation it is. But essentially, they're planning in the next election, whenever that may be, to run candidates in all of the provinces west of Ontario and the three territories. And they are modeling themselves on the Bloc Québécois, and no one is more happy than that about that than the Bloc Québécois, right. which feels like <laughs> the Maverick Party um, is uh, publicly acknowledging that it has served a purpose in the House of Commons. Um, Hill said that in his time in the House, and he was an MP from 1993, he came in in the first wave of reform, and he retired in 2010. So he was there for quite a long time. He felt that the Bloc did a very good job in representing its constituents uh, and the interest of the province. And he feels this model, the type of uh, voting only on your regional interest, if it's good for you, then the party supports it, that that would ensure that Western Canada has a stronger voice. Right. He wants right. the Conservatives to win, to be fair. He just wants the West, uh, the Western Party to have basically the balance of power because he feels that otherwise in national parties, national interests, basically Central Canada and in some part Atlantic Canada dominate and Western interests um, don't get considered because most of the votes are not uh, in the West. They're in Ontario and in Quebec. All right. It'll be fascinating to watch uh, the development of that movement and that party. Althea, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much, Mark. Have a great weekend. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief. It's easy for people to say, just shut everything down uh, when they're guaranteed a paycheck every single week. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Thomas Walkham argues... We cannot afford half measures in our fight against the pandemic. Wacom writes, Either we are fighting the COVID-19 pandemic or we are not. This, I think, was what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was getting at this week when he urged premiers to put the virus front and centre. Deal with the pandemic first, he said, then tackle the economy. Politicians are expected to fight for jobs. But in terms of the pandemic, they are often counterproductive. In the Globe and Mail, Rita Treacher argues COVID-19 has exposed how our health care system fails marginalized people. Treacher writes, The public health system is supposed to be open and accessible to all who live here, but that's not always people's lived reality. Vulnerable groups, including black people, indigenous people, people of color, the poor, seniors, and LGBTQ2+, often face systemic barriers that compromise their health. There are many lessons to be learned from this pandemic. A key one is that our universal health care system is being compromised by stigma and discrimination. At National News Watch, Patrick Sullivan and Daniel Robert Gooch argue Canada's global cities need air transport to support economic recovery. They write, Canada's aviation sector is in crisis. COVID-19 is devastating an industry that until this year had been thriving and supporting growth in tourism, trade, and immigration. The impact on our communities and businesses from the collapse in air travel will be profound if the sector is financially constrained 
once we are ready to travel again. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the media, along with Employment Minister Carla Qualtro and the country's top health officials. Defence Minister Harjit Sajjit will take part in a virtual panel discussion about COVID-19 consequences for defence as part of the Riga Conference 2020. Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will announce government assistance to support the launch of commercial activities by Excel Thera Inc. And Minister of Digital Government Joyce Murray will provide details on funding to support business ecosystems across British Columbia. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, November the 13th. Tune into Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.